So Wolf Snap is a really weird thing. It was originally supposed to be Wolfgang, but uh-huh. this is back in the days when uh, this is back in AOL days. So this would be back in 1990 something, mid 90s. <laughs> and of course, there was no per- there was no Wolfgang, so I tried various permutations on Wolf. Yeah. And Wolf Snap, just random into it. Okay, hey, it's free. Go. Boom. You know, no numbers on the end of it. That was the thing. <laughs> you actually timed that perfectly for about when the recording started, by the way. Oh. Well, uh... So, hey, here we are. <laughs> Welcome. So, uh, as our listeners may have gathered, <laughs> I am joined here by Wolf Snap the proud author of Dire Destiny and a few Pathfinder books, which are great supplementary material. Um, I'm Balgin from the Happy Rocks. He's uh, Wolf Snap from the uh, Light Entertainment Division, is it? Yep. Cool. Um, And you can use my real name. It's Rob Kenzie. Okay, Rob. And you can use my real name if you want. It's Raphael Perry. Awesome. Yeah, so let's see. As I was saying, I've got a few notes here I've jotted down. The main reason we're here is, obviously, you've released a new book. Um, the very last book about war. Another <laughs> Pathfinder book. And I had some interesting thoughts on that one. Although I must admit, I haven't quite got around to reading it yet. I've oh, that's got okay. it. It's on my hard drive. It's sitting there staring at me going, why haven't you read me yet? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm kind of going, I'm sorry, I had things to do. Oh, that's quite all right. It's uh, I'd be happy to tell you all about it. Sure. Well, I was going to go through a couple other points first before getting to that. And um, sure. you'll excuse me, my computer's being a bit awkward at the moment. Hopefully that's all okay. So, obviously I first came across your work actually through the Dire Destiny webcomic uh, oh. a handful of years ago. Uh, I liked it a lot. It was uh, very gritty realistic it had a sort of david gemmel feeling to it very gemmel-esque i'd say thank you uh you know that sort of that sort of dirty low fancy where yeah people can fall in the mud and wounds can get infected and stuff like that yeah um i don't know if it's still going because i honestly haven't looked at it in three or four years you know it's funny that you should bring that up because um so every year i go to uh, gen con in indianapolis uh which is where most of you know, uh, Dire Destiny, that's where Dire Destiny makes money. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> for, for, for at least, at least in a small, uh, way. Uh, originally it started as a webcomic, uh, it, but it really is not suited for being a webcomic because mm. it's, first of all, it's in black and white. Second of all, it is not funny at all. I don't really, I, you know, I, I'm not very good at comedy, so it's not a. It's more. It's all drama. It's all Sturm and Drang and all this drama, and uh, a lot of action. Oh, and, I, I, uh, I beg to differ there. Um, <laughs> I, I think Leaf and the farmer's daughter, and the marriage well, that nearly was, has taught us that you are the master of comedy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, actually, I think you're getting that confused. That, that's um, uh, Pads of Gata. That's the uh, that's the podcast. Yeah, yeah that, that's something else I've I've got in notes to come back to later. So yeah. carry on. I have a lot to say about that, but uh, <laughs> no, but I started it up. Uh, it's been around for ten years now, believe it or not, uh, on and off again. Mm. Uh, my partner, uh, I do the story, and the my the art is done by a friend of mine named Mikołaj Ostapiuk, who works in Warsaw, Poland. 
Okay. And um, it was one of those things where we did it like without fail two times a week every week for two years. And then he had kids and I had another kid and he bought a house. And it's one of those things where the, the updates kind of slowed to a crawl. So, uh, and there was one year where we were just completely on hiatus. Uh, so there are three collections of Dire Destiny that are, uh, it, you know, you can actually buy in print like a trade paperback, uh, trade paperbacks of Dire Destiny. We've released over the years. Um, the first one, I don't know, are we on video here, um, on the recorder? No, 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 just audio, unfortunately. That's okay. Uh, so the first one is, uh, called, uh, Dangerous Omens. The next one's called, uh, Beware the Dark. And the third one's called Here There Be Dragons. Um, there's, I'll send you a link for, uh, we have, if you go to diredestiny.com, there's links to our store at lulu.com where you can buy those. Uh, and... um... I'll look into, uh, if you send me that link, I'll look into putting it into the audio description when I upload it, so people can go awesome. take a look. Uh, but those are like, you know, like 100-page uh, trade paperbacks of, you know, uh, of the comic, and it works a lot better in the trade paperback, and I'm actually, I'm, I'm hoping to get those onto ebook format soon uh, as well. But anyway, so we've been slowly releasing those compilations of what we've done. So it's like 300 pages that's already in print. And we've got, uh, about another 70 or 80 pages that's pending right now to go into the next collection. And for the last couple of years, Mick and I have been talking very seriously about, is this going to continue? Because obviously he's really, really busy now with his family and his job and whatnot. Yeah. And I'm really busy. Uh, but this, uh, just like four days ago, uh, we sat down and had a long heart to heart and, and, and committed to at least finishing book four. And, uh, I would like to go on. I, the story's going to end in book five, no matter what happens. Um, book four ends on kind of a cliffhanger, but the story's going to end in book five. We're going to at least finish book four and I'm going to find some way to finish book five. Uh, you know, so, so that is coming down the pike. That's one of the many, many, many projects. So. Short answer, <laughs> too late, but short answer is yes, Dire Destiny is still continuing. In fact, I just got a new page from Mick Y today, so um, he's, he's, we're going to try and get on a once-a-week update schedule on the webcomic, uh, on the website. The website is also being rebuilt, as a matter of fact. It's been being rebuilt for the last like year and a half, but I, there's actually somebody who's committed to working on it in a serious way now, so, you know, knock, knock wood, um, it's going to be all... Uh, back in order sometime before Christmas and uh, and rolling on into the future again. So I'm hopeful. Uh, we'll see how it works out. Uh, you know what? The, these things have been promised before, uh, and uh, but we somehow just sort of like stagger on with it. But the story keeps going, and, and yes, so again, too long, don't read. Yes, yes, it's still going on. <laughs> okay, well, um, allow me to also say that I quite liked the black and white art style for it. It it added to the sort of bleak feel of the world where everything was sort of hopeless and people were just kind of struggling to survive through the harshness of it all. And the kind of bleeding out of colour, it, it kind of, you know, took away hope and made it feel all that more special. You know, I, I really agree with you on that. It's kind of funny. We've actually tried at like every hundred pages or so, Mikawai has mm. tried to do a colour page just to <laughs> like try out a, a different colour style. And it never works. It never looks yeah, but right. The rainbows uh, and bunnies don't quite fit with the grim mood of the setting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, it, it's one of the funny things is that when I'm I go to comic conventions, I've got like Baltimore Comic Con, I've been to. I go to Gen Con every year. Yeah. Um. You know, I've been to Pittsburgh and Heroes Con in North Carolina, 
And uh, every time I go, you know, occasionally I'll have someone come up and it's like, well, you know, it's great art, but man, it's not in color. And I'm like, tell them, sir, this story could not be, it, this story is so gritty and so dark and so grim, it could not be told in color. <laughs> it's totally not a, a printing cost concern, no. But it, it, the truth is that it is I, um, uh, an artistic choice to do it in black and white. Because if you look at the story, it is, what I really want it to be was I want it to be kind of like a film noir fantasy. Yeah. Uh, and when people ask me what the what the story is, I tell them it's X Files meets fantasy. You know, X Files meets sword oh, and sword. I thought of that angle. Yeah, because the idea is that it's like there's weird, creepy, mysterious stuff going on, mm-hmm. and nobody quite knows what's going on. There's mysteries in the background. There's all this creepy crap happening in the shadows, and our heroes are just uh, these three people who are like outcasts, kind of on the edge of society, and they're trying to they're trying to figure out, you know, why their world is falling apart around them and, and and who is the big bad guy and what is the the, the, the threat well yeah because you've kind of your, your three main characters from what i remember you had to be sort of I, I do like the kind of you've got this sort of anglo-saxon stroke celtic feel in the cultural style of the characters and the world they seem to live in yeah i think part of that is actually it's a big influence from mikawai um i think oh, okay. he's really brought a, like an eastern european scandinavian flavor Mm. to uh uh to the artwork um especially and uh when i originally wrote it uh my brother had uh moved to sweden he'd be married a swedish woman and he moved to sweden he's been back and forth a few times but uh so i wound up throwing in all of these sort of like references to nordic folklore and swedish uh you know language and things like that into the uh into the comic and that sort of like became the basis for it it's actually if, if we really want to be honest, the comic goes back, the story in the comic goes back um, long, long way back into uh, my old school days when uh, it's it's very, 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 very loosely based on an old D&D campaign. Go figure. I was, I was going to ask about that as well, actually, because I was going to say other characters, they have this slight feel from what they might be based on characters people played in a game you once were involved in. There was a um, uh, there was a game originally um, where and I, that I ran like three. It was a campaign that I ran like three or four times because I kept moving around when I was younger. Yeah. And I'd, like I've run it like three different times, and like the last time I ran it, it was already starting to be a story in my mind. So the last time I ran it was kind of a disaster because I was railroading yeah, everything. You, you knew what what you wanted to happen and the course. Exactly. And and after like three or four sessions, I was like, you know what, this isn't you know. I'm going to, we'll put this aside. We'll do something else. I really need to do something else with this. Yeah, and, the, the uh, story is too good for the players to change it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but all the people who played in the campaign certainly informed the, uh, these three characters. So there's, there's bits and pieces of a lot of, uh, a lot of different characters who sort of like, I think that's why they, they kind of feel real is because they, they were developed over a long period of time, really. Yeah. And, uh, so it was originally, so it was that game. And then at one point, I don't know if you remember the old, uh, uh, SSI gold box adventures or um, uh, the, the I PC. I remember them, but I didn't yeah. have a computer at the time. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there was, uh, they did a thing called Unlimited Adventures, which is basically a toolkit. Oh, yeah. I messed around about it at one point and made yeah, a few so rooms and tunnels and put things in there. I, it, uh, it's still out there floating around the internet, but I did an adaptation of the story called Sword of Arcania, which is a uh-huh. really 
It's a really crap title. Oh, God, um, that thing got re-released recently, didn't it? Or I don't know. You can probably find it out there somewhere. But yeah, uh, this, I did this thing called Sword of Arcania, which was based on the story. That So if you were to actually find that, you'd find like all these weird references that, to things that later you know show up in the comic. Um, and uh, so after that, then I tried to reformat it as... Uh, I think I pitched it once as a sort of like a large, like a Skyrim type game. Uh, but I, I was pitching it back to, uh, Sierra Online. This was, again, this was back in the early 90s. Yeah, quite a while uh, ago. I, yeah, <laughs> quite a while ago. So I pitched it to Sierra Online as kind of like a, an open world type adventure game. Um, and, uh, then it was, uh, I was working in Hollywood for a time and I, uh, tried pitching it to somebody as a novel and then I tried reformatting it as a television show. Uh, and then eventually, um, in the late nineties, uh, I saw what was going on with web comics and I kept trying to bug, uh, various people I knew who were artists to, to sort of throw in with me. And eventually Mikawai, uh, you know, finally succumbed to my advances mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, uh, we, uh, we wound up, uh, hooking up online. We both play Warhammer. So that's Aww, how we... Oh, good man. <laughs> <laughs> I I have enjoyed many a good game of Warhammer myself. In fact, if if you could see the video, you'd see it. there's a table box like full of full of goblins. Yeah. Waiting to be painted. Oh, trust me, the, the unpainted lead mountain is quite large at my end as well. Yes, I've, I've actually gotten very good at it because, especially ever since I've had kids, my buying has slowed way down. So it's oh, been yeah. like I've had to paint more. Um, oh. So there's uh. There's not too much, although I, I went and did something very, very silly in that I got into 28mm Napoleonics. Oh. Uh, I saw the, the Perry brothers uh, who, who make, uh, they used to do a lot of sculpting for Games Workshop, and they have yeah. their own miniatures company, they do historicals. I saw their 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 28mm plastic Napoleonics, and I fell in love with those, and I bought way too many. So They, um, they are gorgeous sculpts, it's just that Napoleonics at that scale... You, mm-hmm. you'd have units the size of a kitchen table, you know. That's true. Well, you don't... The problem is you can't do real units. You ha, it's all got to be very representative. Yeah, it's got to be abstraction of scale and stuff like that. So, and so again, if we want to sort of bring it back, that is... So I come from that wargaming background. I've done wargaming and I've done role-playing games, so it made a lot of sense that I would <laughs> write a book trying to marry the two together. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so. let's see. So... um. Getting back briefly to Dire Destiny, there, I, I liked the fact that the the sorcerer, he, you know, his magical power came from this sort of enchanted enchanted gauntlet that he wore, but he wasn't really in control of it. So it was kind of like the magic came with a price. It wasn't it wasn't a nice, you know, it wasn't a, a happy magic. You know, it was more kind of gritty. Yeah, and the, the, everybody calls it his mark. They don't really, you know, think of it as a, it's like this weird thing that marks him as this this. Yeah this other and he hides it he's got to he keeps his arm wrapped up and everybody thinks he's a leper or something like that yeah i mean so you had him you had the sort of angsty celtic mercenary guy and then you had the little elf girl who was trying to work out why her people were all dead and why she's left alone with these two people to look after her yeah she's really she's one of my favorite characters uh out of out of the three of them oh, everybody loves kells because he's such an asshole yeah. <laughs> you know, you know he, he's he's the one he like there's a few times where he like deliberately sort of undercuts the um, uh, you know the sort of like fairy tale overtones where uh, yeah 
Oh, I was actually meaning to ask if, if he, because yeah. of his mark, if he was intentionally named after the Book of Kells at all. Um, he was named, I named him Kells just because I like the sound of it because it, it um, he has a lot of epithets uh, on his name and it, it flows really. So he's Kells the liar, he's Kells the thief, he's, you know, Kells the wanker, Kells the drunk, Kells yep. the vermiculate, you know, he's, so it, it kind of like flows. Uh, so I, his okay. name was was chosen very much for the the, the way it sounds. It, actually, it's just funny of... that you you spelt it exactly the same way as the Book of Kells, which is uh, one of the greatest existing medieval manuscripts. Yes, to no, have survived Viking raids, I think as well, possibly. You know, and it's it's in re it's a really beautiful book in great condition. So I wondered if there was any relation there, because he was obviously your wizard. You know, but, no, oh, I, apparently not. I'm familiar I'm familiar with the Book of Kells, but it was Mars. I did really pick it. Or the way it sounds. Also, there's a bar in Seattle called Kells that I that I liked a lot when I was there. So that oh, was okay. the fact that he was a drunkard, and so I knew a bar called Kells. It's where that's where the connection came in my mind. But it was more about the way it sounded than anything else. Okay, let's uh, let's move on now to your book about war. Um, sure. The very last book about war. I know, very grandiose title. It's um, <laughs> you do uh, seem to be developing this the very last series. Yeah, <laughs> of the very well, last books on one subject or another. Yeah, well, the the first one, the first of the very last books yeah. was uh, was uh, the very last book about mounted combat. I was at uh, PaizoCon several years ago, uh, and I was I did uh, uh, what what year was it? It was uh, it was like it was four years ago. Yeah, it was four years ago, um, and uh, I took along a recorder and I did interviews with everybody I could. Um, I got Ed Greenwood and I got um, uh, Jason Bullman and um, uh, and I got Eric Mona was another one who's uh, the publisher there and I wound up talking to Eric Mona because I was uh, I had a little bit of a uh, a bitch fest with him about how um, mounted combat isn't used enough in uh, roll in the D twenty. Hmm. Um, are you still there? Yeah, okay. I'm still here. Absolutely. Sorry, I picked up here. <laughs> but about how mounted combat wasn't used enough in D20. And uh, I think it was sparked by the fact that uh, they had just released the uh, Unlimited Combat book and it had mm. the Cavalier. Uh, no, no, I was sorry, it was the APG that had the Cavalier. Yeah, the APG had the Cavalier. Yeah, and uh, I really wanted, you know, I love playing Cavaliers, but there's hardly, you, it's hard to find a, a model for a Cavalier on a horse. Mm. Uh, I actually, I spoke to somebody at Reaper and she was telling me that the casting of course, is actually very difficult because of the skinny little wankles. Um, it's hard yeah. to, you know, you get a lot of breakage that way. But uh, anyway, so I was, you know, I talked to him about, you know, horses and stuff like that. And uh, that uh, that conversation basically gave me the idea to do the book. Um, okay. And I shopped it around to a few of the independent third-party publishers uh, who I met over at PaizoCon. And ultimately, though, you know, I'd had already, I'd had experience already publishing the Tomb of Hagamoth. And yeah. I'd had, uh, I'd already published, um, a, you know, a, a volume or two of Dire Destiny. So I knew that, I mean, if you're thinking, if anybody out there is thinking of, you know, doing third party D20 source books, <laughs> okay, uh, and publishing through somebody else, if you go to any third party publisher, the going rate for, uh, that kind of work is basically a penny a word. Um, wow. Which is yeah, which is basically that's what H.P. Lovecraft was making back in the 1930s, um, writing yeah. for the poets. Uh, so 
you know, you're not going to get rich doing it. And basically what it came down to was, you know, I kept getting offered, you know, a penny word for what I was doing. I was like, after publishing Hagamoth and after publishing Dire Destiny, I knew that I can do that myself. You know, I don't, I don't need to go through another publisher to make a penny a word, uh, or more. So, uh, what I wound up doing was saying, well, screw it. I'll do it myself. And I, uh, I found a really nice artist, Ava Dennis, to do the cover and I wrote it. And you, you gotta be really comfortable with writing mm. and editing and typesetting, basically, in order to, to put something like that together. But I had a lot of experience with that kind of thing. So, uh, it was pretty easy for me to jump in and do it. And, uh, the title came up because nobody, uh, who else was going to write a book about mounted combat? So I figured it was pretty, it was pretty safe. I was actually, there's a, there's an old movie called the, the last remake of Beaugest, which is what I had in my, I think it's Marty okay. is in that one. I, and, I thought it was uh, something more along the lines of, you know, everyone else has written one. So here's, here's the be all and end all. Last yeah, one we're going to no. need. There you go. Done. <laughs> With the mounted combat book, it was, it was, it was sort of, it was more like, you know, nobody else is writing about mounted combat. So. Yeah. Who else is going to write another one after this one? <laughs> so, sure, it, surely it must be the very last book. Uh, and then uh, after that, I decided I wanted to do a couple of very last books because I wanted to touch on some places where I thought the rules um, were either misunderstood okay, yeah. or a little underdeveloped or, yeah. or just things that didn't get used a lot. So alignment was the second one, and uh, I you know, that sparked a lot of uh, controversy. Oh, I completely and... forgot the alignment one. Yeah, it's the very last book about uh, alignment with the second Will you one. allow me to tell you my view on the alignment system in D20? Sure, go, go right ahead. It's uh, quite plain and simple, really. Um, being that I, I came in first through getting the old first edition books cheap, because they were like half the price of the second edition books, which come out a year or two ago. Right. Uh, my, my opinion on alignment was, it's not your personality, it's your attitude. Yeah, you know, I think your, that's... Your, your, your outlook or basic overview on life. So, you know, it, it doesn't dictate how you should behave in any given situation. You know, I, I could play a lawful character who's completely messy, disorganized, seemingly very chaotic and shambling, but actually has a lot of respect for authority, um, mm -hmm. you know, because they're basically all just your view on society and how you view society works. Right. One of the things that I, I talk about in the book is that alignment is more descriptive than proscriptive. Yeah. Um, than that it is what, like, what most people use alignment for, honestly, is they use it as sort of a shorthand substitute for backstory. So instead of saying, this is, you know, uh, Hordoth the fighter, and he comes from a tribe in the hills, and they are a matriarchal society, and they have traditions going back thousands of years, and uh, he is very, uh, you know, uh, honor-bound to follow all of the edicts of his, you know, instead of saying all of that and going on for five minutes, you just say, ah, oh, this is Hordath, he's lawful good, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of like subs in that that sort of like gives you a feel for who Hordath is without having to get mm. you know or write you know Reeves well, backstory. I suppose it's useful if you have to make a character and start playing in a hurry. Yeah, but, um... but the the other thing is that for uh, that I wanted to sort of like do with that book was to make it so, again so that it's descriptive instead of proscriptive, so that mm. alignment is really a reflection of how your character behaves or yeah. the attitudes he has, like you said. Rather than something that says he must do this, he must do that, you know. That I mean, in some more extreme cases, with you know characters who are very tied to their alignment, like you know, paladins, paladins. clerics, you know, priests, templars, anything like that, you can occasionally say, okay, you might be stepping over the line a bit there. 
mm-hmm. uh, actually got a situation a little bit like that in one of my games of uh, Priestess of Erastal, the mm-hmm. god of home and the half and, you know, hunting, looking after the community. And she's been kind of neglecting her duties re- recently, um, branching out into other outlooks on life. It's not entirely her fault. You know, events are kind of shaped and pushed this way, and she's kind of gone with the flow. And a few of the older priests are kind of grumbling that, you know, she's not behaving right, and maybe they should do something about that. We'll see where it goes, but I'm not, I'm not immediately enforcing any mechanical penalties like, oh, you can't, you, you know, you can't do these prayers or you can't call these miracles or whatever. I might have to eventually, but I don't think I will, in all honesty. Well, what you could do is, um, you could have the her discover some other aspect of Arastal, which is actually just sort of like leading mm-hmm. her into another deity or something like that. That would be interesting, actually. Um, so her alignment does shift, but it, over the course of it shifting, she winds up basically getting entangled with another deity, and so mm-hmm. that's a that could that could take the character in a whole new direction. You know, I'll bear that in mind. Thanks. Hey, no that problem. That could be interesting. Um, so before I just get onto the book about war again, and the Cavalier sure. is useful about war because this is a nice yeah. little tie-in here in theory. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also am a bit of an aficionado of the Cavalier class. However, Mm. for completely different reasons. I look at it, and I like all of it, and I hate the horse. I want to play a Cavalier without the horse. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Uh, Because here's the reason why I hate the horse, right? I only hate it for a mechanical reason. I do not hate it for any sort of image or role-playing reason at all, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, For me... The core of the Cavalier class is the the teamwork feats and the ability yeah. to share them with people who are nearby. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, so this means that maneuvering and positioning is paramount. You need to be in exactly the right place at the right time, and then we're going to give you a horse, which makes you like three times as fast as everyone else, mm-hmm. and suddenly positioning becomes irrelevant because you've just got the speed to get there anyway. I have to tell you, that that right there, right that in a nutshell, that was where I wrote the Mounted Combat book. Um, <laughs> because... Nobody, you, you can't ride a horse into a dungeon. You can't. So, and so nobody wants to spec into mounted combat. Um, so what I did was, in, if you read that book, if you read the mounted combat book, it's all about, mo- you know, a good portion of that book is about l- how to make mounted combat useful and fun for people who don't want to spec into it, who don't want to spend yeah. beats, who don't want to, you know, to do that, so that the Cavalier has somebody to ride around with, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So that you know, yes, all right, yes, as a as a rogue or a ranger, you spent all this all these feats on doing fancy movement. Okay, hey, you can share that with your horse. All right, so let's yeah. do that. So you can still do that stuff while you're mounted because you're controlling the horse. So you still get you know to be to be all uh, you know fancy dancy and and you know do all that kind of stuff. And and generally, I always again, this is just my bias. I always feel hey, that's that you fine. Should, you know, it should be better to be you should be better to be mounted on a horse than to be on foot in any kind of combat situation. Well. Almost any situation, yeah. Almost any situation. You know, going up a hill into pikes, probably not. But Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, then we get to your wonderful book about war. Thank you. What is it good for? Uh, uh, it's, the very last thing. It's good for, it's good for <laughs> capping off an adventure. That's what it is yeah. good for. <laughs> so um, I have written here, yeah, mm-hmm. vaguely, that Paizo introduced a uh, battle system in Ultimate Campaigns, uh, Again, yes. I haven't read yeah. it that heavily purely because it was kind of forced on me by a, a player for something that's like, yeah, I don't really need this at the moment. I'll get around to it later, you know. But the general thing I got for it was that, you know, units or even entire armies are basically reduced to simple stat blocks that basically get to stand still 
smacking each other. The, um, um, and yeah. that's not really a very descriptive, narrative, evocative experience. You know, it's it's great as a simulation, but mm -hmm. it, you know, if I'm running, if I remember, like say the old Lone Wolf Adventure game books or Fighting Fantasy books, where you'd occasionally have battlefield situations, your character would be running around, things would come out of the fog of battle, and you know, whoa, there's a cyclops. Where did that come from? It's just <laughs> knocked over three guys. I'd better get out of its way quick, and and it would be very sort of uh, driven, little snapshots, cutscenes, pushing you through. And that is how I enjoy to run that kind of situation as a GM. And just going, okay, so this army has a plus 17 attack bonus and an armor class of 24. It's like, okay, yeah, that's not a lot of fun to me. Yeah, so the, I gather one... that you wanted to make things more sort of character-driven and descriptive again. So why don't you talk about that? Okay, yeah. The, the one from Ultima Campaign is definitely more bookkeeping than drama. Yeah. Uh, it's cause, and there is there is no there's no tactical feel to it. There's no tactics to it at all. So you don't really feel like your characters are doing anything, um, really. You just you have two armies. One hits the other one. One hits back, and then they back off. Basically, yeah. is how it works because <laughs> the, the D twenty system really wasn't designed to handle you know ginormous battles. Um, uh, I one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I had done like. I've been involved in like three campaigns and all three of them had at some point, like as the capstone to a big adventure, tried to incorporate some big, huge battle scene. And, um, I, I did two of them and a friend of mine did one. And each time, like we, we had, we tried something else to make it work. Uh, and in fact, the last campaign that, that I was in that where we did this was like a sort of Game of Thrones style campaign where we were actually, I was playing a cavalier in that one and mm -hmm. I was trying raise an army and go off. Well, you, you were not playing a cavalier in a Game of Thrones campaign. You were playing a dirty, rotten bastard and backstabbing <laughs> and abusing and cheating everybody and pretending he, to be a cavalier. He wasn't the nicest guy. He certainly wasn't a paladin. He, he, had, a, he had a paladin on staff. Uh -huh. <laughs> but but he wasn't a paladin himself. He was a, he was a cavalier. Uh, and, uh, you know, really, I was playing I was playing him like a warlord, basically. I mean, yeah. all, all he was interested in was you know, uh, was uh, was basically you know getting one over on the enemy and, and showing off how you know amazing he was as a leader. But uh, the uh, you know we tried again, again a number of different ways to resolve large battles and none of it was satisfactory. Uh, so I went back to the rules and I started looking at uh, at how to do a large battle and and what I came down what I came down to is that in a lot of these systems you don't feel like your character is doing what your character normally does you, you, mm. you know because when you're in a dungeon adventure your character is swinging from chandeliers and running across you know yeah the they're, battle they're space and, you know exactly you know flanking people you know chopping heads off taking names doing you know uh you know heroic daring do and things like that so i thought all right we have to preserve that for a mass combat system and uh, what I basically came down to was like, all right, let's try and keep this as close to a regular Pathfinder battle as possible. Uh, so what uh, I wound up doing is I said, okay, so we'll go back to, uh, and I don't know how far, if you're a real old grognard like me, you remember there used to be a, a thing back sort of like in the pre-dawn of D&D &D called Chainmail. Oh, yeah, there's mentions of it in the old. So uh, I went back to Chainmail, yeah, believe it or not, and I mm. took a look a couple of the conventions in Chainmail, and I said, "Oh, well, these let's look at these old old style wargaming conventions." So, what do we do? Okay, first thing, change the ground scale. Hmm. So, uh, you know, one square is no longer five feet; one square is twenty feet. Sure. All right, and then change the figure scale. So, one figure is not one guy; one figure is ten or a hundred yeah. or two. 
guys, however you want to do it. Um, and the way you build a unit is you've got a, a unit is a single entity on the battlefield. Uh, so you don't like, you, you may have like 40 miniatures, uh, on the table. Just, just for argument's sake. A lot of people don't have 40 miniatures. And hey, that's hey, how... whatever number it is, you know, yes, it's exactly. an abstract but, number essentially. But you could have like 40 miniatures on the field, but it's not necessarily 40 individual creatures that you have to keep track of. Mm. It could divide it up into like four units, so to speak. Uh, and the miniatures become sort of like placeholders for hit points. And uh, as the unit takes damage, then you pull off miniatures to show that the unit's getting less and less effective, that kind of thing. Um, and most of what is in the book is basically t- starting from that premise of change the ground scale, change the figure scale. And how do we adjudicate all of the character's abilities based on that? Um, so uh, the first section of the book basically describes the, the change in scale. The second section uh, gets into the rules of uh, how do units fight one another? Um, yeah. So, you know, without the characters present. So how how does one unit, you know, crash into another one and how do they exchange blows? You, you, you want to keep that relatively simple so it doesn't exactly. bog down. But yeah. And that's tracker. why you, when, unit, when a unit fights a unit, there's basically, there's not a lot of dice rolling. It's not like you're rolling yeah. tons of dice. When It's not like Warhammer. With <laughs> Warhammer, when, when units come into contact, you're breaking out buckets full of dice and you're oh, doing... Yeah. Uh, and that's fun for Warhammer, but that doesn't really work for this. So, uh, the units can sort of like push against one another and, and do some damage. And if you're tactical about it, if, if you like gang up and flank and things like that, then yeah, you can, you can really inflict some pain there and, and carry the day that way. But then after that section, then we get into the characters, which is, and this is a character driven system. This is a, okay. a system where the characters should be front and center. They should be out there, you know, um, uh, the fighters, fighters are good leaders in this system yeah. because they get bon- like they can use their bravery bonus to help their unit. Um, and, uh, they, uh, are just sort of like, and they can all judge, just jump in and, and hack the heck out of, uh, out of the enemy if they need to. Um, bards and other social characters can use their ability to inspire units. You know, the, the, uh, the rogues. Uh, are one of the hardest uh, sort of like to take care of on the battlefield. But, uh, you know, rogues now will outline was how they can hide on the battlefield, infiltrate other units so they can like backstab enemy leaders, uh, sabotage war machines, that kind of thing. Um, so that's a great thing for rogues to do on the field. Wizards nice. and sorcerers, of course, are like artillery pieces blasting the crap yep. out of uh, units and changing the battlefield and things like that. Adjudicating spells is actually uh, the most difficult uh, part of the mm-hmm. rules, it requires quite a bit of leeway on the on the part of the DM, but it's not impossible. We go over sort of like the ways because uh, we also sort of uh, change the time scale too. So instead of basically one round equaling six seconds, one round equals a minute um, of battle time. So you have to adjudicate certain things with how spells go on. That's cool. And, and so there's rules about you know how you adjudicate the timing of that and whatnot. And it sounds really complicated, but honestly, it it it's once you've read it and sort of like done it once, it becomes really intuitive uh, because, as I said, it plays very, very much like a regular uh, Pathfinder uh, battle. Uh, it's yeah. just instead of it's like you against a dozen guys, it's you and your army against an enemy horde with the evil general bearing down on you in the whole nine yards. And uh, it's a lot of fun. We did a lot of uh, playtesting of it. And. Uh, there's one mechanic that everybody really loved for the martial types. Uh, it was called bloodbathing. <laughs> you, you do a bloodbath, and that's basically where it's kind of like where you're like Conan or Aragorn, and like one guy dumps alone into the enemy, and he just concentrates on hacking 
down as many guys as possible. And it's kind of like an open-ended thing where if he keeps hitting, he can just keep on going. As long as he hits, he yeah, keeps on. We, back in the old days, we used to call that a death run. Just going on yeah. a death run. You pick a direction, run in that direction, kill everything that gets in your way until you die. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's, and that's what it's all about. Uh, and I think that uh, we did a really good job of making uh, you know, combat cinematic and dramatic. And your characters actually get to do cool stuff during the course of an enormous battle with, you know, huge forces on either side. And uh, it preserves that that sort of that feeling of, of the drama of a battle without having, you know, to go through the rigmarole of, of something that's more like a, a, you know, historical miniatures game or something mm. like that. it still feels like Pathfinder, but it's on a much, much grander scale. See, I'm thinking this would work quite well for the, uh, oh, what is it, the Wrath of the Righteous Adventure Path, where you've got the Crusaders of Mendev going up oh. against the, you know, the Hellspawn coming out of the Rift, all the demons and the devils, and the Crusaders just piling onto battlefields. And, mm -hmm. You know, it's a long extended campaign. There will be lots of battles in it. I'm thinking that this is a good system for that, because it will stop the players getting bored when you sit down and go, okay, so we're going to have this battle. Yeah, you know, exactly. it's like, all right, so the armies are gathering, the storm clouds are <laughs> brewing, you know, just bring it all alive and plonk the players right into the middle and go, right, boom, now here's a few quick rules that will gather, you know, slightly different change of scale and go. Yeah, and that'll, <laughs> now the, the one, the drawback, it, it's obviously, if you're like a war gamer like us, yeah, uh, you have tons of miniatures lying around. Um, one of the things that I did in the book is I, for, if you don't have tons of miniatures lying around, hmm. uh, the book has a bunch of tokens uh, <laughs> in the back. <laughs> yeah. No, no, sorry, you're bringing back some hilarious memories. Um, <laughs> I have a friend who I've known for about 20 years, and uh, he doesn't own a single miniature. Uh -huh. uh, and whenever we played war games, he used to actually draw one-inch square grids on <laughs> sheets of paper, then cut them to the size his unit should be. And write on it what the unit was, and then tear off little squares as the guys got killed over the course of a battle. <laughs> yeah. yeah, hey, whatever works, man. Yeah, whatever, whatever works. Uh, but for for the for GMs and whatnot who don't have hundreds of miniatures lying around, um, like like us war gamers do, uh, there's a, a set of tokens in the back you can photocopy and you can put them on cardboard and you can sure. use them as chits to represent units. Um, so they fit on a one inch square grid and, and, uh, you know, you can use that instead of, and in some cases that it actually is a little bit more, uh, what's the wrong way? A little bit more wieldy to use the chits sometimes yeah. if using a, an odd sized unit, like a cavalry unit, um, or, uh, or, uh, ogres or something like that. Sometimes the, the chits are a little bit easier because then you just, you put down, okay, here's the 10 chits representing the unit and just put one ogre model on top of it. So now you yeah. know it's a unit of ogres kind of thing. Um, so that, that's one way to sort of like get around that. But of course, if you're war gamers like us and you have lots of miniatures laying around, of course, that the whole point is to bring out, you know, bring out the armies. Yeah. Get the table and, uh, <laughs> bring out your lead. Uh huh. Exactly. <laughs> or, or plastic, you know, or if you, plastic if you... or even resin in some cases. Oh yeah. Uh, and, uh, another thing that's in the book of talking a little bit about is, uh, you know, do if you want to go really the whole war gaming hog, get off the grid. Mm. And do it, uh, and do it wargaming style on like yeah, a just measure distances. Exactly. So instead of one square equals twenty feet, it's one inch equals twenty feet, and you just measure in inches. And that actually, and honestly, that works for regular Pathfinder mm. too. That's a, I'm a big booster of that, um, especially for like when you're doing like dungeons and indoor spaces. That's one thing. 
Yeah. But uh, especially if you're doing an outdoor scenario. Outdoors freeform movement is much better. It does. It works so much better. Uh, And that way you can sort of, you know, especially if you're a war gamer, you get out your model hills and the green mat and the trees and the whole nine yards. Uh, but even on, you know, even if you take like a flip mat, a battle mat or something like that, and throw it down, mm-hmm. draw the trees and everything like that, forget the grid. Just yeah. use a tape measure. One inch equals five feet and you're good to go. And you'll, you know, the only thing you got to, I guess, adjudicate a little bit is a tax of opportunity. But, you know, even that is yeah, that's uh, relatively easy to handle, you know, common sense and you're, and you're good to go. And it, and it plays a lot faster because nobody's counting squares. Yeah. <laughs> the bane of, of narrative description everywhere square counting yes <laughs> exactly uh, so... um just to, just to sort of wrap up the uh the war book the, the yeah. last thing in the uh in the war book is um uh we we uh I, when i was talking to the people we were, we were developing with um the uh we tried to to make the leadership be useful for something new mm. um, because we figured the leadership piece has got to be the thing that's going to be the most important you know in a in a battle scenario so I hope so <clears throat> so like uh, leadership sort of like gives a bonus that's a little bit like improved initiative to uh to the general of the if you're the general of the army and you've got leadership okay. you get sort of like an initiative style bonus yeah um, you can kind of see what the other guys are up to and, and work out how well to handle it and relate to it that's also about how fast you can get your own guys moving and yeah also there's a whole section on recruiting an army so you like uh role play going out and having to actually raise an army so there's rules in there about you know where you have to go to find enough guys to make a unit of guys to, to raise a levy mm. uh, to, and what you got to pay them. And the leadership peak gives bonuses to that and bonuses to upkeep as well. So uh, that makes leadership a little bit more useful as well. And uh, also there's a, there's some sort of like very brief general rules on how to run a, uh, a sort of like a battle campaign and do it more like um, instead of doing it like in ultimate campaign where you've got like hex grids that you have to, sort of like plop around um you know you could also do it more like a game of risk where you draw a map that's divided into provinces or sections and then uh that becomes a, a it becomes a lot faster i find when you do things that yeah. way um and it's you lose a little bit of granularity but at the same time i think you improve the uh the overall feel of the game lovely i remember the old one of the old way of the tiger game books actually had like half of it was a battle um where you know this uh, evil usurper had come to try and claim the crown, the crown. It was it was very interesting. You you practically got this map and moving units around it, all very descriptive, of course. And I liked that a lot. I, I should dig those out again sometime. After after writing this book, I really really want to run like a a, a war narrative campaign now. <laughs> I, I thought the Pass of Gita was a war narrative campaign. Um, Pants of Gata did become uh, a war narrative campaign a, a little bit. We did. We only did one really big battle in Pants of Gata because okay. it was one of those things where the players kind of had to be into it. And uh, Joel, who plays the, um, uh, uh, the the bard, who eventually um, uh, Ilar, who eventually becomes the I, I don't know where are we are in the story. I can't I can't remember where we are uh, in the story. I, but... I gotta say, in all honesty, I. Have... I listened to the first sort of 13 to 17 sessions and then I kind of dropped off for a while, took a break and I, I need to get back into it. Yeah, it was a lot I'm... of fun listening to, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Because, um, you guys kind of approached it with a sort of military background of moving troops around and armies and forces and stuff. Originally, like we're going to go survey this area and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the way you brought the players into helping shape the world and stuff like that. And we have a nice thing is, of course, but it was like your first time playing Pathfinder. 
Um, so often it was nice listening to characters level or, or players discovering rules and it's like interested to find out like, hey he's he's taking like some feat or investing in some skill that I wouldn't normally go for so what's his what's his reasoning for this just just listening to the guys like oh you know what that's a that's a nice little you know why don't I try that sometime you know yeah especially at the beginning especially in the early episodes there yeah. was a, there was quite a bit of that and uh, I think because that was really what what we wanted to do I mean we had this sort of like grandiose notion mm -hmm. that we were going to do for Pathfinder what Hal did for uh, World's Largest Dungeon. Okay. <laughs> and like, all right, we're going to go from level 1 to level 20 and do the whole system. <laughs> that was, that didn't happen. <laughs> in, in, in my general experience with uh, earlier D20 editions, personally, I feel that characters over level 6 are generally a bit too overpowered. Some, somewhere around level 7-ish, they get to that point where they can go do something really silly and, you know, like walk in front of a dragon, insult it, get fire breathed all over him, turn around to a mates and go, oh, that wasn't a very good idea, was it? <laughs> I've still got like 30 hit points left. It's like, oh man, no, just no, you know. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, um, I think things that, that we managed to do, I mean, we're, I, if I remember correctly on the website, we're up to like session 42. Of, I really uh, need to get listening then. Yeah, and I think uh, the total number of sessions I think is like 65 or something like that. Oh, so we're, I've we're got closing. Like a backlog of stuff to release as well. It's about 50, yeah. 60 sessions. I, I'm overdue. I'm overdue to to, uh, to release that. Yeah. The rest, of that. but it's all edited. That's that's the important thing is that it's all edited, and I just have to to render a couple of of uh, of pieces and then move on and um and then get it onto the website. Oh, so we had some we had some. Uploading the last few, there was a problem with the uploader, but I think that's been fixed now. So. Yeah, I have a lot of editing to do. I'm not looking forward to that. But uh, especially in the early days of, of the podcast, uh, we were definitely uh, trying to like focus more on the rules. As we sort of like went on at past a certain point, uh, there was there was less and less of that, and some of it I edited out because yeah, uh, uh, Brian who who plays a number of characters, he plays a uh, Karnak. Uh, originally, he he has a tendency to sort of natter on about the rules <laughs> at, at length. So um, at, at at a certain point uh, in the podcast, uh, in the editing process, like okay, Brian's going off on tangent, and let's just chop mm -hmm. this. <laughs> I hope and, he doesn't mind. I know. No, I mean, he, he's he's a really cool guy, he, but he's very much he's like rules heavy guy. Mm. He's he's a really rules focused guy, and I do have so a nice bunch of players. I must say, you'll get along and play together very well. Yeah, it's a, they're a really good group, actually, and mm. and they all have sort of like different strengths. Um, you know, like uh, uh, Joel, who plays uh, ILR, he sort of he's really good at have he had a really good character concept and that he was really into portraying. He really ran with it. And and Chris too plays uh, uh, Zerunal, um, mm -hmm. like everybody's favorite <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the campaign, the halfling wizard who just can't get out from under. You know. His problems. <laughs> Like this sad sack halfling, he's and just like he, he, he's, no matter how much like phenomenal power he gains, he's always an apprentice still. <laughs> <laughs> so um, actually, I think that got resolved in like session forty or something like that. So that's uh, that he, he finally does uh, does figure something out. But then that was a lot of. I'm not going to spoil it. But it was, oh, was, that, was that the time when he went back to his master to repay his debt, and um, there was something about going out to fetch one more thing to finish it all off. 
Oh, no, no. That's it. He, his, he goes back to his master a couple of times uh. in the podcast to try and get out from under the debt. And it's like every time he goes back, his master's like, okay, yes, all right, great. You give me all this money. But, uh, of course, yeah. the interest that uh, you have to pay. I, on, I listened that you to pay. shortly after the first time he went back to his master. Yeah. I think he goes back at least two more times. Uh, one time he goes back and, and he has a big fight with his master and he gets turned into a rabbit, I think. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, it's a polymorph, uh, baleful polymorph, man. I love mm. that. That's one of my favorite spells. Oh, yeah. We, we, we've had fun with that in the past. Numerous yep. creative ways of using it. So, yeah, I, I, I try to make a character-driven um, campaign so that the characters themselves can sort of, like, lead the way. Yeah. Uh, I've talked to a number of people about this sort of like style of doing an open world uh, campaign where it's like find out, you know, what kind of like get get goals from the PCs so that you have a vague idea at least of what they want to do and then sort of give them the opportunity to do it. Like Joel's character, he said, you know, he, he gave me a backstory for ILR where ILR wants to sort of like get back, rediscover the old, you know, elven kingdom outposts and and sort of like bring make his name by sort of like building those up again and you know lo and behold hey here here's here's the opportunity and he went for it and it's and yeah. happened and uh, you know and then there was alex who basically said i just want to roll a lot of d20s and so mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and and then of course i wound up you know if you say that to me i'm like okay i'm going to give you lots of reasons to roll lots of d20s and it's mm-hmm. it's probably very awkward <laughs> so, so alex um... is I like your GM style, by the way. It's very relaxed and comfortable and friendly. And and also kind of nice free-form improvisation. Uh, back when I started GMing, around 1991, 92, 93-ish, something like that. Um, cause, well, te- technically a lot earlier running games of HeroQuest, but that doesn't quite count, you know. Right. Um, at, at the time, I liked running free-form adventures and sessions for my players, you know. And uh, I, I kind of had this attitude that I really didn't like published adventures that much because they took away from the freedom of the GM to be creative. Right. Hey, you know, I was a teenager. What do you expect? You know, I was yeah, like, yeah. no, I want to do my own thing, you know. And then, you know, uh, over a few years, I got around to the kind of mindset. But actually, you know what? It, it's it's great running a freeform creative session, but there are distinct advantages to preparing something for the players to experience mm-hmm. beforehand rather than being completely freeform because hey if they go in a direction you're not expecting it's great to like adapt quickly but sometimes you just get caught a bit off guard and go oh don't know what to do there so preparing is better and then having a published adventure where all the preparation has essentially been done for you allows you to be very lazy and just read the thing and then get ready to run it yeah and i suspect a lot of gms kind of fall into the trap of then like you know I, i know a lot of gms who only run published adventures and you know don't really want to do their own thing uh so there's probably this kind of lazy trap of going okay i'll just do this because it's here and easy but what i then got onto is you know what i can still be creative with a published adventure i don't need to slavishly follow it i can do you know what i want to do i can be creative i can change names of npcs or whatever and after i got a bit of a reputation for this i then got into the trick of then running published adventures exactly as written (laughs) <laughs> because players believed I was modifying them anyway. Right. And so would not treat it as much like a published adventure, but treat it more as a sort of free-form experience. Um, and then they just experience the adventure anyway. Yeah. But uh, when... uh, uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, and, and now these days, 
uh, a challenge I'm faced with, with with some adventures is I'll I'll come find a really good published adventure that I want to run, and I'll say to some players like, hey guys, I've got this great adventure I want to run, and they're like, well, sell it to me. Why do you think I'm going to like it? What what's? And it's like they're suddenly really edgy and and uh, you know, and it's like, what happened to the trust? You know, years <laughs> ago, uh, you know you'd settle down with players and the players would trust the GM to provide a fun experience they could all enjoy together. And now a lot of players seem to be kind of burnt out or, you know, or a bit sort of uh, jaded. And they're like, mm, get, give me a blurb, you know, give me a, a back cover spread or whatever. Tell me why, what you think is good. It's like, with, with some adventures, there's just like, whether like a plot or a mystery or whatever, it's like, I really can't do that because it would give you major spoilers. And, and what I could tell you, wouldn't sound very appealing, you know. Yeah. So what uh, are your thoughts on this? Well, my own experience, I, I will, I have to cop to the fact that I have never run an adventure, a, pre, a pre-written adventure straight out of the book. Um, cool. I use them, I've bought tons of them, I read them all the time. That's uh, good for inspiration. Oh yeah, I mean, but, and also, I mean, I, I gotta give credit where it's due. I mean, like, Paths of Gata, the stuff that I, I mean, yes, it's, it's technically it's quote unquote off the cuff and improvised, but you know, I steal left, right and center from everywhere mm. of the sun. I mean, if you, <laughs> if you look at, and it's not just published adventures too, it's like movies, books, stories. I mean, I lift things that I, in the past I have seriously like lifted stuff completely out of another, uh, out of some other work and just thrown it into the campaign just because I thought it'd be cool just to see what the players would do with it. Hey, hey, um, there, was, there was an encounter I thought you actually lifted from a chapter of Dire Destiny. Oh, which one? That, that bit with the ghouls in the ruins at the bottom of the tower. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's actually, that that's re- that is very much actually the, the sort of like, that's kind of like a standard go-to um, yeah. uh, encounter of mine that I, I mean, <laughs> you're like, you know, you, you do enough... Um, uh, GMing and DMing, and eventually there's like like a, a suite of encounters that you like sort of like know how to run and know how yeah. to present that you just like okay I'll just reskin it slightly I'll put it I, I have a great yeah. one with with two giants trying to find their baby oh yeah where's my baby I can't That's... find my baby anywhere have you seen it <laughs> <laughs> And of course, they they immediately pick up one of the PCs, and that's the baby. <laughs> but it, it's more amusing if the PCs have just encountered the baby a short while oh. ago, and it's like, hang on, there's this this big bald ogre lying on the ground, shaking a club and and making these horrible wailing moaning sounds, and mm-hmm. yeah, we don't want to go near it. It could be dangerous, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and like uh, again, as of Gator, like when they're stumbling around in the woods there. I mean, that's basically the Blair Witch Project. Oh, when they right, go, okay. When they go out of the woods there. And, uh, you know, and uh, if you go along further in Paz of Gata, the, um, uh, the big capstone dungeon of the campaign winds up being an old TSR module, the Lost Caverns of Socanth. I don't know if you... Oh, that thing. Yeah, I, I never could work out how to pronounce that. Yeah, I don't. That, I don't know if, that if I've got. We pronounce it like four or five. That, that's what I've settled on finally. Yeah, but, I, I've kind of settled on Sodgkamp, but yours uh, kind of flows off the tongue better. The um, uh, I, I found that in uh, a, I had a friend of mine. Uh, it's a kind of a personal story here. I uh, when I went to college, I wound up selling off almost all of my gaming stuff. Um, okay. It was, it was a really stupid, boneheaded move. So if anybody out there is considering the same move, don't do it. You will regret it. Uh, 
but yeah, I got rid of like a ton of like this is like oh I've got a again this was this was the late eighties so yeah. you know this was before the huge gaming boom that happened in the nineties and uh, so I was like I was trying to sort of like be grown up and be you know uh, adult I guess I don't know Pay it was college fees yeah <laughs> exactly um, so I wound up selling um, just about everything and I really regretted it later on. Uh, when I came back, I eventually came back to gaming as, of course, I would. Well, I, you know, it's part of my life. It's always been a part of my life. Uh, and when I came back to it, I was kind of like pining for these old, you know, first edition books and stuff like that. And a buddy of mine who's another Warhammer player who doesn't play role-playing games at all. That's like, mm. he's like, oh, role-playing games, that's too nerdy, right? <laughs> you know, he yeah, plays Warhammer. There are a few war games like that I have to put up with on, on Monday evenings. Uh, I know. I th- he's, he's very tongue-in-cheek about it, but yeah. the, the He's like adamant that he will never play a role playing game. Uh, but a friend of his, um, like moved away and that, that friend's mother apparently, uh, found a box full of stuff around. She's like, Oh, you play this stuff here. You, hmm. I'll give it to you. And she gave it to him and he looked at it and it was all like old first edition D&D stuff. And he gave it to him. He basically gave me back my childhood. Nice. I can never. Yeah, I can never thank him enough for that because that was like, like everything, everything I had was in that box. Uh, and I was just, uh, I was just about bowled over by it. Um, but, um, and among the things in that box were these old first edition modules and the Lost Caverns of Socan is in there. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, this is a really cool dungeon. I'm gonna, you know, run this. This will be the, the big thing. And it wasn't even intended to be the big thing. It was just like, um, I needed one of the characters wanted to have a, a treasure map. One of the, one of the players wanted his character to have a treasure map. So I gave him, I, I actually wrote up a treasure map. Hmm. The Lost Caverns of Socan, you know, with the little, you know, X marks the spot up in the corner, yeah. uh, up in the, up in the storm reaches. <laughs> and as they get closer and closer to it, they keep going up and level and having adventure. And like, it wound up being one of those things where it became this huge, enormous quest to get. It didn't start out that way. It was just, <laughs> oh, we'll just treasure map to the dungeon, right? And it turns out yeah. that it was this huge, it became a huge adventure following adventure the treasure. to get to the dungeon. <laughs> Exactly. Which is, that sort of goes back to Tuma Hagamoth as well. Yeah. I don't know. Um, and so I wound up running that dungeon. Of course, I had to completely, almost completely rewrite the entire, uh, the entire dungeon because uh, I now had to sort of like change the level of the creatures. It's a first edition module anyway. I had to adapt things and I wanted it to, to mesh with the rest of the story as it happened up to then. So I had to, rewrite all just about every encounter in the book but at the same time it provided a really good framework for that and uh it it gave me a lot of inspiration and you know boom it became you know a lot of fun everybody had a great time so i I love published adventures because they they give me ideas Hmm. uh i've I've, like i said i I, one of these days i want to try running some like pathfinder society games and in those it's very important that you sort of like stick to the script yeah they, they, they um they're interesting. I've, I've run a handful myself. I haven't recorded any of them because... Actually, no, I, t- I tell a lie. Um, technically, many of the Adventure Paths are Pathfinder Society games now, and I've, I've been running the Shattered Star Adventure Path uh, as a society game. But they, they, when it comes to those, you can play it two ways. You can play it as a, you know, as an Adventure Path. You just play the campaign, have lots of fun, and occasionally get given chronicle sheets like, hey, here you go, one of your Pathfinder Society characters gets a, a level, essentially. You know, or you can play it in pure hardcore PFS mode, where you basically cut each book in half, 
mm-hmm. take like the solid dungeon crawl portion of it and go right guys in you go jump in play that boom it's your quick mission in out there's your objective and some players relish that way of play you know uh, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm one of them but some players really like playing that way and that's I'm, that's fine by me you know so, so yeah if anyone's been listening to any of the Adventure Pass and website they might get minor spoilers for some of the like Pathfinder Society versions but yeah uh, running Pathfinder Society games on the whole yeah you, you do have to run them pretty strictly as is but you can be quite creative with that still that I've means... just started I've just started playing Pathfinder Society actually when oh, I was really? at the last few years I've gone to PaizoCon um, and I usually go there because I'm promoting something and I'm choosing mm-hmm. trying to you know uh, you know, sell stuff and, 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 and just meet people who are in the industry and whatnot. But this last time I decided, okay, I'm going to take the plunge. I'm going to do Pathfinder Society. And okay. uh, it got to be a lot of fun, actually. Yeah. Uh, How are you liking it? Um, it's, I think it's really great for conventions and stuff like that because you meet mm. new people, you come together, you have a good time. I've never met a bad Pathfinder Society GM at a convention. I've, I've, you know, that they're all amazing. They're all, the, the people and these are people who like are seriously invested in it and they yeah. do tons of volunteer work to organize games and they've run every scenario and they're just like that there you'll never find a more competent GM than you will um, at, at at like a Pathfinder Society game at a, at a convention. I um, they're, up here. I have run Pathfinder Society games at conventions like once a year. Well, then you must be a very competent GM. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say, maybe. Uh, I, I was running one adventure, uh, which is a murder mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to give you any major spoilers, but essentially the player characters came, came across a... Uh, and this was a, one of the big treble slotters all-day scenario sort of thing, you know. Uh, they came across a clue, and they took it to a particular you know, piece of information that they wanted analysing because it was like incomplete. It's like, hey, what's this? Uh, they took it to the appropriate craftsperson in town who happened to be in league with the actual people behind the whole thing. Uh, so and it's like, yeah, yeah, you come back tomorrow and we'll check this out and I'll just get the gang ready. Uh, they triggered off 26 encounter locations simultaneously across three different maps. <laughs> <laughs> by deciding to walk into the two buildings across the road, the two buildings just next to each other would be underground tunnel system connecting them both simultaneously oh, because they knew that all the bad guys were in this one building. Oh, mm-hmm. hey, the person they needed to check up the information was, was in the building next door. They didn't know that that person was like the number two in control of the gang in the main building they were going to. <laughs> so while one person went in to get the information quickly, the others kind of went, knocked on the door of the other place and, oh, it all kicked off. Oh man! And then someone fell down a pit drop onto the bottom layer, and <laughs> I, and I a... was having to do a lot of bookkeeping. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it when and that they all happened. survived. Yeah. <laughs> First level that's... characters, they all survived. It was impressive. Mhm. Mhm. No, oh, that's that, that's the kind of thing I just I just love when stuff like it happens in uh, mm. games because it's just I don't know. It, it, there's a certain sort of like chaos that is awesome. Uh, that yeah. just sort of, just like with uh, with role players. I remember listening to a Hal one of the games that he was running a which game was it? I don't know it was what it, it was D and or, or <laughs> Warmaster or whatever. But I remember this like the 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 party came up with some like ridiculous plan where um, Lindsay's character was on a wagon and they were pushing a wagon down a tunnel to something. <laughs> oh, and just, like, the Olden Haller contract from Warhammer yes, Fantasy Roleplay no, First Edition. Like, yeah. How, 
just listening to them talk about it, and you just like they outline the whole thing. He just kind of like laughs. He goes, "I love role play plans because this is like the most complicated, chaotic, um, possible you know solution to the yeah. problem." <laughs> but it looked cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and oh, and you know, rule of you know that is that's what good GMing I think comes down to is rule of cool. You know. Mm. Uh, if it's cool, it works, you know, or at least it has a chance to work uh, one way or another. The the only time I've ever had a a, a bad experience playing a game is when somebody um, it was actually it was one of the things that turned me off to fourth edition D and D. I tried it out when it came out, didn't really do it for me, but um, uh, it bit of a sore spot there. Yeah, it, for me, I'm sure it's a good game. It mm-hmm. just feels like it's overcomplicated and too mechanical. It's it's World of Warcraft a role playing game, you know. Yeah. And, and honestly, I think that it was a, I think it was a bold move that mm. Wizards did. I think it was a bold move to try and get new people involved. I think it was successful in that yeah. result. Yeah, uh, a good move, I, just a bit too combat focused. It's like, okay, here's a, here's a narrative non-combat situation. Let's turn it into a combat encounter by forcing initiative checks and uh, skill rolls yeah. and everything. You know. Uh, honestly, I think that it's um, uh, uh, it's a good solid game. I think it just doesn't yeah. feel like D to me, which is the, I think that's yeah, what. Yeah, it feels like a separate game, kind of like. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay Third Edition doesn't feel like anything to do with Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay at all because it's just not. It's a completely right. different rule set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, so, and it, the, I think like the only bad GM experience I had was in a Fourth Edition game where the GM was like, it was granted it was new game, hmm. and I was like, I don't know, there was some fight where I wanted to, uh, we were fighting on a dock, and I there was some netting there, and I wanted to throw the netting over the bad guy, and uh, you know, he was like, well, it's not really. You should really do what's on the cards there, and this, that would just be an athletics check, and you're not very good at those, so it probably isn't going to succeed, kind of thing. Um, so, and and that kind of like that kind of felt like stifling to me. But that that's where a situation where you're getting sort of like too hung up on the rules, uh, yeah. and where if you can make something, I'm just as a GM, I've always thought if you can make something cool happen, then you know, forget the rules, make something cool happen, find a way, find a way to make it work. Uh, or at least to have a chance of making it work, uh, mm. so that at least the characters can try it. Uh, maybe they'll come close, even if they don't succeed. And yeah. if they do succeed, then you know, hua, you know, there was that was that was a cool moment. That was an amazing cinematic dramatic moment. Yeah, that was kind of one of the core tenets of third edition. Really, was you don't say no, you say how hard is it to mm-hmm. do this? Yeah, exactly. Um, so. On the subject of cool for a moment, I really like the way you've handled player absences and stuff, where you had like a player miss a session, uh, and he stays with the party for that session, leads them on a wild goose chase. They find out he's a doppelganger who's beaten him senseless, left him in the sewer. <laughs> and while the doppelganger leads him up into the hills, he gets this farmer's daughter pregnant, and she <laughs> runs away from home to find him. And then like four sessions later, they find her being held prisoner by bandits, and she runs into Leaf's arms, and he's like, who are you? <laughs> that, all right. See, this is actually that that is a situation that just got way out of control. <laughs> yeah, it was still hilarious, that, though. And, and, and the thing is, the funny thing is that everybody um uh, 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 is totally understandable, totally understandable. Yeah. But everybody gets that situation actually backwards because um the uh all right, so let's back backtrack a little bit. The um uh, okay. so. Chad, Chad misses a session, right? And I have a general rule that if you miss a session, mm. something will happen to your character. You know, I, I like you know, this. I, I don't kill characters. When, I, I don't ever want to kill a character when he's not when the player's not there. It, it doesn't feel uh, fair, does it? 
exactly. And I, I, I would much rather have just sort of like that character fade into the background or go off and do something else. Yeah. Um, but as long as I can, if, as long as I have a good idea for it, and, you know, I, I don't try and force it too much, but, but I always try and come up with a cool reason for why the character is not available, mm. why the character is not there, or have something weird happen to the character while the player's gone. So when the player comes back, that they have to deal with the fact that they weren't there, and so something happened to their character yeah. while they weren't there. You know, nothing um, deadly and terrible. You know, some GMs have the invulnerable bubble of invulnerability the character goes into, or, or silly stuff like that, which just yeah. doesn't work for me. Um, then, then you have GMs who go, right, well, the character just isn't there. Well, where did they go then? It, it was a bit of a logic break sometimes. Right. Um, and then there's, like, keeping the character in the background in NPC mode, so they won't be the main force that drives anything. But yeah. they can, they'll still be around, and people can make continuity remarks and stuff. But I like the way that you just go, you know, what, I'm going to do something. This character's going to be involved in something, and then they'll get back into the action relatively quickly when they return. Exactly. And uh, you know, one of the, one of my favorite ways to do is, like, especially if the if the PCs are pursuing a bad guy, you know, yeah. I'll and the character is not there, then I'll have that character get like kidnapped by the bad guys. So they have sure. to pursue the bad guys even further to get to them, and then when. <laughs> They finally will catch up, and then they can rescue their comrade, and then, then move on with the thing. Um, uh, that, that's an old standby. But with Chad, so he wasn't there, and I came up with the it, what if not this is the doppelganger even in the game for really? When yeah. you think that—that's the epiphany I had. In oh that moment, yeah. Where um, you know I didn't want to leave. I didn't know what to do with the fact that Chad wasn't there because his his character didn't have a reason to leave the party. Mm. So. I came up with this whole thing. Um, th- th- boy, th- this is, let me tell you, this is like the most fateful thing in the whole campaign. The fact that Chad <laughs> didn't show up that week. Because like two huge major plot lines spun out of Chad not being there that yeah. week. Doppelganger. So uh, I had to, okay, he's a doppelganger now. So the doppelganger is traveling with the party. And the thing is that I was looking for a way to get Alex's character, uh, Savrin, more into the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the party stops in this little village, um, Saverin, you know, Alex was being sort of like the Mr. Too Cool kind of character. I don't even remember exactly what he was doing, but um, so I tried to, I, you know, I had one of the farmer's daughters sort of like chat him up or whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was, oh yeah, whatever, whatever, you know. And uh, so then I had the idea that, okay, during the night, the doppelganger, all right, spoilers, but I'm, yeah. I'm going to spoil it. It's been out forever. <laughs> Uh, spoilers that it, during the night the doppelganger would take Savrin's form, would stop being Liath, would start ah, okay. with the farmer's daughter. Um, that makes and more sense now with what I remember, exactly. yeah. And would turn back into Liath. And so the next day when they're leaving town <laughs> and the farmer confronts them and he's he's talking at Savrin and Savrin's like, oh, I don't know, I didn't go there. I was in I was asleep in the barn that night, you know. It's not me, man, it's not me. Um, and, and the funny thing is it, it Alex actually played the character really well because he originally told me that he wanted to play a character that was kind of like the dude mm-hmm. in um, uh, in uh, um, uh, what's it the Coen Brothers movie that I can't remember the name of. Oh, uh, I'm only I only know of one of their films, so Jeffrey, where are now? The Bowler, the the you know the rug really tied the place together. What was the name of the film? I can't remember. I don't know. I really don't know. Got the wrong. The ah, oh, it's a name. The Big Lebowski. There we oh, go. I haven't seen that one, but oh yeah. So I've basically, if you look at his cat, and I had not seen the movie, so I really didn't catch on to what he was doing until it was too late, really. Okay. But yes, he's basically playing the dude from The Big Lebowski as a cleric, um, <laughs> <laughs> which made which actually oddly made the whole situation a little bit more appropriate. <laughs> but uh, so so Savrin gets his confrontation, and they decide 
Severn, you know, I got, it was always hard to figure out what Alex wanted because he never really, he was always kind of like weird about engaging with the story. So I never pressed too hard. Uh, so I didn't press the confrontation too hard and they just said, we're not going to, you know, Hey, it wasn't us. And you know, we're not going to deal with you on this. And so I was like, fine. I didn't want to push it. And so I had the farmers back off. Cause then what are you going to do anyway? What are the farmers going to do to the, you know, the gunslingers coming through town basically. Yeah, so, not a lot. Other than shake their fists as they leave town and say, don't you come back here, man. And uh, so then the party goes out into the wilderness and there's the whole uh, thing where uh I do the reveal that Leoth's character, you know, winds up, uh, you know, turning on the party and mm. separating the party and messing everybody up and whatnot. Uh, so then when Chad came back, uh, you know, I had to have a reason why the doppelganger had done this. And so the reason that I came up with is that the doppelganger was trying to get to that cave because he had something important that he had to deliver um, back into like the Underdark or something like that. And so then as a result of that, the doppelganger was carrying this gem, this weird gem MacGuffin thing. Hmm. Uh, and so after they destroyed the doppelganger, then now they've got the weird gem MacGuffin thing. And I had to figure out what that was about. And that turned out to be a huge plot driving thing. And at the okay. same time, later on, I was able to bring back the farmer's daughter to try and get, you know, Saverin's character back into uh, the, uh, back into the, the, the whole, uh, cycle mm -hmm. again, and that was just an, another uh, attempt to get Saverin to 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 be a cleric, <laughs> which may have been doomed from the start, but it was funny. <laughs> it was certainly amusing to listen to. And yeah, it went along with the nice treatment and the free breakfast, and right right up until she got a priest in and and a bunch of <laughs> wedding guests, and and he suddenly realized what was going on. <laughs> and what is funny about that is, all right. Everybody who's like in the game, everybody who's listening to the podcast, everybody knows what's coming. Everybody yeah. has what's coming, but Alex hasn't. He's the only <laughs> one who doesn't see it coming. <laughs> and, and like he was like he was like literally blindsided by that, and I was like seriously, and like he asked everybody around the table. I mean, what? It's like, I, I like this. This is out of the blue, and everybody else is like, "No, it's not, dude. It seriously isn't." <laughs> Oh, and so the, the next time that Alex was uh, was um, absent from the table, actually, mm -hmm. uh, there there was a uh, a this I I had a, a stroke. If I do say so myself, this was a stroke of genius. He, he was off doing, paying child support fees and <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I had a thing where um, Alex was away for a few weeks, actually, and when he came okay. back, uh, and so I had his character separate from the party. And nobody knew what his character was doing during that period. But when he came back, I basically had him wake up again, and he had gotten hit on the head after a battle, and he had amnesia. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he didn't know what had happened, and so he had, he wound up learning about some of the stuff that he had done while, oh, he, was, you know, while he was separated <laughs> from the party. <laughs> so he was like, basically, and it was perfect for Alex's character, the way he played it, because he <laughs> always kind of played it like, you know, what are we doing now? Where are we now? And... Uh, <laughs> Oh yeah. Okay. Boom. Amnesia. Perfect. I don't have to worry about what you were doing, you know, except for a few, you know, humorous asides. Mm. So that's a there's another G GM hint. Player goes away, gets amnesia. It's fine. Mm. <laughs> and then you can and you can spit a whole other plot out of that too. So, you know, if the if the player wants to really wants to go back and find out what happened. So there's, there's lots of cool tricks to to do that. Um, and 
that, that's that's one of the most fun parts of, of GMing for me is, is is coming up with stuff like that. Maybe that should be your next book, the very last book of absent PCs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think I think the very last book of War is probably going to be the very last of the very last books, at least for a okay. while. I've got uh, I want to focus on Dire Destiny right now, and there's also actually some. Um, I used to work in Hollywood back in the day. I say work in Hollywood. I used to beat my head against doors in Hollywood uh-huh. uh, back in the day. And so I've got a bit of a background in film. And I've actually um, gotten back a little bit into uh, working on short films and things like that. So there's uh, there's some there's some short film. In fact, I think I posted a link to one on the forums um, as well. Uh, that's one that my daughter's interested in acting. So I, I put together a, a little shoot. Uh, we did a little short where she got to do sort of like creepy Wednesday Adams type thing. Um, and we did this little short film and it was a lot of fun to work on. There's another bigger film project, which is still kind of under wraps at the moment, which I've been working on for over a year now, uh, that may or may not ever see the light of day. So there's that. There's a few other things. There's a, there's a, an HP Lovecraft, um, adaptation that I'm currently working on that I really like to, to see done in the next, uh, you know, eight months to a year. And, um, there's a, a novella that I'm working on. There's another, there's a, a another game as a card game that I'm working on. I'm basically, I'm Mr. Like I've got how many, too many irons in the fire basically mm-hmm. right now. And I've got too much to do and not enough time to do it. Hey, uh, we, we all get into that situation once in a while. Well, yeah. Many of us do anyway. Yeah. But the, the, you know, people ask me I, occasionally cause I like, I put out books and I'm like, doing you know warhammer i'll paint a new army or something like that and my friends say rob where do you find the time to do this and it's all like man it's all about incremental progress and the fact that i'm always working on at least 10 things at once so you know so, something has to get done <laughs> at some point yeah so, you, you, you get that point where occasionally it all builds up and you're like well i've got to finish something now just to feel good about the rest of it yeah i just oh, i was so excited i figured out a project that i could do there was something an idea i had a a, a while back um and I realized that I could work on it on my phone, like on a, I do a lot of traveling for work. So I, I like on my phone when I'm on a plane or something like that. Um, I, I'm writing a book of dwarvish poetry. <laughs> oh, I'd love to see a copy of that. I, I don't know how good it's going to be when it's done, but I, it's I, gonna... I'm not sure if you're aware of how many dwarven characters I've played over the last few decades. I'll, <laughs> I'll definitely look forward to it. I don't know. Looking at your avatar, <laughs> I kind of suspect. <laughs> yeah, quite, quite a few. <laughs> yeah. I love dwarves. Dwarves are awesome. Yeah. They're fun. So it's overlooked people. Yeah, you know, there's a weird thing about dwarves, um, which is that if you look at like like the, I never understood where this sort of like thing came from. The dwarves are Scottish, uh, or or have Scottish accents. I don't. I don't. These dwarves are not Scottish. They have, you know, Viking Scandinavian names. Yeah, but they're also Jewish culture. Exactly. That's what I was going to go for. They have they have this slightly Semitic type air Mm. to them. Which, um, as like, if you look at like the way the dwarven language is is structured in Tolkien, so I always thought that was kind of you know that was kind of cool. So uh, anyway, so that I'm trying to come up with like what 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 would makes dwarven poetry, and I'm looking at like long vowels and repetition and mm. something you can bang a tankard along with. L- lots <laughs> of consonants, and uh, yeah. I'd say possibly uh, if you want to go back to the sort of Viking and Anglo-Saxon thing, lots of alliteration. Oh yeah, uh, but it's not simple alliteration it's alliteration with the letters in the middle of words as well provided they are the main sound of the word or one that you could emphasize so then went he where you're even emphasizing the n in went 
you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and things like that. So I'm I'm hoping that that'll uh... anyway. It, it's it's something that I want to be fun and uh, something that I so that that may be another book that I can sell at Gen Con or sell online. Yeah. Well, hey, if you do release it, let me know, and I'd gladly gobble that one up. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, let's see, what else have I got going on? Actually, that's uh, that's enough for now. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of thinking we've been talking for a little bit over an hour. It's probably a good time to wrap it up. I actually ran out of my my written material about ten minutes ago. You know, so I just stretched it out here, yeah, nice and easy, rather than going. Uh, so your next question is, <laughs> and being horribly stilted about it, I thought I'd just kind of drop things in when it seemed to work well, naturally. A, fun, a really fun conversation, actually. You're you're yeah. you're a cool cat to rap with, man. Thanks a lot. So um, I'll kind of wrap this up soon, get it uploaded in a bit. Um, any thoughts on the title? Uh, on the title for this uh, this podcast? Yeah, I, I, I was thinking just like Balgin talks to Wolf Snap, but I thought we've yeah. both been talking, so maybe chats the very last interview (laughs) (laughs) the very last podcast about gaming i don't know (laughs) the very last first interview with all the maybe not the very first there we go the very first interview yes yeah why not that's a good one i'll do i'll do that actually all right awesome cool well thanks a lot it's been a pleasure talking to you maybe we'll talk again sometime all right yeah Uh, man I'll say bye bye for now. Yeah, if there's, and if there's um, if you want to do this on a more regular basis, just like rap about gaming and stuff like that. If you decide that that's a cool idea, just let me know, and I'm I'm down for that. Hey, I like that idea. Well, we should definitely talk about that.